Hello, this is Christian Okoye, former Kansas City Chiefs. You are listening to Grilling Truth. Welcome, everybody, to the Grueling Truth NFL Legends Show, brought to you by GridRMO, an interactive football app where you get to call what you think the offense or defense will do in a live NFL game and see what all others have, call, all others have called also. So check out GridRMO at www.gridrmo.com. Our guest today, legendary running back at Louisiana State University, went on to be a first-round draft pick with the Cincinnati Bengals, helped lead the Bengals to Super Bowl sixteen. Help me welcome to the show Charles Alexander. Thank you. Pleasure. My pleasure. Great to have you on. So we'll start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your early years when you first started playing football and who some of your early influences were. <laughs> That's been so long ago, I don't know if I can remember that. But uh, <laughs> I'll try. Uh, I think the first time I uh, decided to play football, uh, I was in the eighth grade, and uh, I went out there and uh, – I can't remember what position I, I tried to play. It was either running back or defensive back. And all I can remember is uh, uh, coming home one day real tired, and uh, I was raising my grandmother, and she said, well, look, if, if it's too hard for you, don't worry about it. You can do something else. So I decided to quit. And uh, once I did quit, I regretted that I did, and I said, well, I'll wait until next year. And I'll go back out there, and this time I'm not going to quit. And I, All right, so tell us a little bit about your high school career when you realized that you could play at the next level in college. I was recruited by LSU and uh, decided to, to uh, go to LSU. I, I was, I'm from a small town, uh, Galveston, Texas, probably about, uh, at the time, 60,000 people. Uh, and it was a tough decision on whether or not I would go to the University of Houston uh, which was only maybe an hour from my hometown, or whether or not I would jump in the car and uh, go five hours to, to LSU, and eventually I made the decision to go to LSU. So what pushed you that way? Was it Coach McClendon and Coach Stovall? Uh, it was, to be honest with you, it was basically Coach Stovall. He was a fearless, a relentless, uh, <laughs> never-say-no uh, recruiter, uh, I didn't have great numbers in high school, so I just couldn't understand what he saw in me. Uh, but obviously he saw something that nobody else did because <laughs> he recruited me like I was a five-star running back. Uh, the other schools recruited me, but they were sort of, you know, lukewarm, uh, but nothing like Coach Stovall. And I decided that, uh, I said, well, this this guy seems like uh, he can make me into something. And I'm going to give him a shot. And I, I really loved the school when I went to visit, and I decided to make that decision to go to LSU. All right, so you get there. You came from a small school. You said you didn't have huge numbers in high school. How big of an adjustment was it for you from a small high school to a Division One college football program? Well, it was a small town. It really wasn't a small school. We were 4A. Uh, I graduated with over 800 uh classmates in my class uh but we i went in high school i I had three different head coaches in a period of four years so it wasn't uh no stability there and uh we went from the high formation to the uh wishbone and uh we really couldn't uh, the coaches couldn't decide what they wanted to do and it was mass confusion and 
we really had a lot of talent on that team. We just never was able to turn the corner, and I, I think that was part of the reason why I wasn't highly recruited. Plus, I was a late bloomer. Okay, so you want to tell us a little bit about your time at LSU? I know you became the starter in 1977. I know the game that stood out to me just looking at your career was a four-touchdown game against Oregon. You want to just touch on some of the highlights of your career at LSU? Yeah, I'll, uh, okay. I'll, I'll try to make this a little brief. Uh, my first game, my first season at LSU basically was uh, a mirror of my high school career. Uh, I had uh, the first game I can remember I had, I never did make it back to the line of scrimmage. I wasn't a starter. But uh, sometime in the second quarter, uh, Coach McClendon asked for uh, White two to go into the game, and that's the that's the second unit, and I was the second team tailback, and uh, didn't make it back to the line of scrimmage. I think I had a minus eight yards rushing against Nebraska up in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, when I was a freshman. Uh, my freshman year, uh, I had about uh, two point eight yards per carry. Uh, on my rushing average, so I didn't, I didn't see any, uh, uh, no daylight. I, I, I didn't think I had an opportunity to go to the NFL for sure. So I said, well, I think I probably need to get my academics and uh, just go from there and go back home and be a high school coach. That was my dream, or that was my goals, because we used to fill out a goal sheet at the beginning of the year with Coach Stovall. He was my position coach, and. Uh, my second year, uh, I think the light switch kind of uh, flicked on, and I had uh, my sophomore year, I think I averaged over five yards a carry as a backup. Uh, I almost had 900 yards rushing, uh, backing up uh, Terry Robisky. And uh, my junior year was one of, one of my uh, better years, well, it was my better year uh, in college. Almost had 1,700 yards rushing. And I was a Heisman Trophy candidate my senior year, a legitimate Heisman Trophy candidate my senior year. And uh, pulled a hamstring in the middle of the year, never was really healthy until the end of the year. But I still managed to get 1,100 yards rushing and uh, went on and was drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals. I was a 12th pick. I mean, yeah, I was a 12th pick in the first round at that particular year. Uh, Cincinnati had two first-round draft choices. They had a the uh, third pick in the first round, and I was a 12th pick. Uh, the third pick was Jack Thompson from Washington State, and I was a 12th pick. All right, so let's talk. Everybody sees draft day now, ESPN, the NFL Network. <laughs> what was your draft day experience like in 1979, and how did you find out you were going to be a Cincinnati Bengal? Well, it certainly wasn't on television. I can promise you that. Uh, I can remember I had a little small apartment, um, maybe a mile off of LSU's campus. I was still going to school, and uh, I took that particular day off of school. I had uh, maybe three reporters in my little small apartment, and we all huddled around a little portable radio. And... uh, (laughs) and listen to the draft. And we didn't have cell phones back in those days, so uh, I was just waiting for my my house phone to ring. And it did ring a couple of times, and it was just friends and family calling me and asking me about have I been drafted. So, you know, when the phone rings, you hope it's the team, and 
I was disappointed at least two or three times and about, uh, you know, thinking that it would be someone to call it to draft me, and it was just yeah, family. The bad thing there is, Charles, you got no call waiting back then, so they could be trying to call, <laughs> and the phone's going to be ringing busy. <laughs> yeah, I had the smoke signals, you know. <laughs> it's amazing how you can look back and see how uh, different things, I'm not going to say ancient, I'm going to use the word different, uh, different things were uh, back in those days. Uh, first of all, relying on a, a portable radio and then uh, hoping that the telephone would ring. So uh, I did get, uh, I think I got the call uh, after it was close to noon, if I remember correctly, and uh, asking me when could I come to Cincinnati for an interview. Uh, I was drafted by the Bengals, so I was I was excited. And I, I I called my you know my relatives and told them everything was honky dory. All right, so you get there. The owner is Paul Brown, one of the greatest football coaches that ever lived. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about your interactions over your career with Paul Brown? Uh, it wasn't very much. Uh, uh, Paul Brown was more of a uh, he would come to every practice. Uh, he didn't hold very long conversation, which I, you know, I was pretty quiet back, and I guess it was kind of hard to talk to me too <laughs> back in those days. But you know, he would give you some advice. Uh, he would speak to the team about two or three minutes before every training camp. Uh, basically, told us, you know, look, your careers, most of you guys, are not going to be here. Your career is going to be, you know, three, four years. Don't think that you're going to. Uh, Earn a, a be rich or not have to work the rest of your life because back then you know players' salaries were pretty low, <laughs> and he would always tell us to save your money, buy your house, save your save your money, and uh, find something that you want to do after your career, which was good advice. Uh, his son uh, Mike Brown, which is I think he's the still I know he's still working with the Bengals. I think he's the president now. You, you had more interaction with him. Uh, more than uh, Paul Brown, but uh, I can tell you one quick story that I do remember about Paul Brown. Like I said, he used to come to practice. Uh, I don't, I can't remember him ever hardly missing a practice. But uh, it was right before the uh, the Freezer Bowl in Cincinnati. Uh, we we're about to play the San Diego Chargers, and I don't know if you remember that the weather was just. Unbelievable! Oh, yeah. It was cold. I, I, I live here, Charles. I remember that weather. I was like 12, <laughs> okay. 13 years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was brutal, and uh, Coach Greg was a tough guy, and <laughs> he believed in you know you gotta you gotta play in this tomorrow. So I'm gonna take practice. I mean, we're gonna practice like we normally practice. We're not gonna make any uh, adjustments for our practice schedule. Because you guys got to be out there tomorrow, so uh, we're gonna just go through with the way things we no- the way we normally do it. And uh, I can remember after about maybe five ten minutes at the most, uh, Paul Brown kind of interrupted practice and told us he got to shut this bad boy down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's no sense in this, and uh, let's just deal with this weather tomorrow. And practice was over. It was a very <laughs> short practice. The bad thing is this, you bring up the freezer bowl. If that was today, they would move the game back to Monday, if you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, 
I know back in those days, you know, we had to show how tough we were. <laughs> it was very smart, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it's one of those games you'll never forget. Well, we talked about going to the Bengals. I mean, you came from LSU, which I'm sure you played in front of a packed house every game. You get to the Bengals in 1979. Um, like you said, they drafted Jack, Jack Thompson, thinking he was going to replace Kenny Anderson, I think. Um, right. Homer Rice was the head coach. You want to talk a little bit about your rookie season? Oh, um, my rookie season was, uh, uh, I guess, sort of, uh, I didn't. I didn't start most of my rookie season. I think I, uh, Archie Griffin and I, sort of like rotated in. Uh, they didn't feel like I was ready to play, and uh, which I probably wasn't. <laughs> I was looking back at it. There was a lot to learn for me, and uh, it was a different type of offense. Uh, the running back was more involved in blocking uh, for the fullback, uh, more of a receiving uh, type running back. It wasn't. Uh, I wasn't used to what I uh, what I came from LSU, which I was the the back in the eye formation and get toss right, toss left, uh, run the ball off the tackle, uh, maybe a throw off the middle. Uh, it was a totally different offense, so it took a little adjusting uh, for me to get used to it. And I, we didn't have <laughs> we didn't have great teams back in those days either. I think we went. Four and twelve, my first my first year. So it was a learning process, and I think uh, Coach uh, Homer Rice got uh, fired after my rookie year, and I think Paul Brown decided that he needed to bring someone in a little bit uh, tougher, if you want to. <laughs> I think that's the word to use, uh, a tough guy. Yeah. And uh, he decided to. to uh, Hired Forrest Gregg, and there were several changes made. Uh, had a whole lot of new teammates uh, my second year, but the third year we 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 saw things start to happen, and uh, I think that's the year that uh, we we did go to Super Bowl. Well, before you get to '81, you had 1980, which was a year where the Bengals. I think you guys actually beat the Steelers twice. You were in every game, just couldn't quite get over the hump. What was it that Forrest Gregg brought to the team that mm-hmm. Turned it around from seventy nine to eighty, even. Uh, I guess I could use two words: discipline, toughness. Uh, he wasn't an easy guy to play for, but uh, <laughs> you respected his decisions. Uh, I, I I loved him as a coach. He was uh, he was fair. he was. Uh, if, there's no one that played for Coach Greg that could say he wasn't fair. I mean, he was tough, but he was fair. He would always, uh, if you if you did what you had to do, and you and you you listened to uh, some of the things that he said in the meetings and and played like you were capable of. Uh, we would be in, like you said, we would we would be in a lot of games. Uh, we actually beat. I mean, at that time, pitched the. Beating the Pittsburgh Steelers was a big deal. I mean, they had a great team with Franco Harris and Terry Bradshaw and Mean Joe Green. They, they had a Jack Lambert. I can just remember all those guys, and uh, they had a great team. But we were able to – Coach Greg was able to fire us up and, and get us to play uh, our best once we played the Steelers every year, those years. Yeah, and you go – you go into the 1981 season. I mean, the game that stands out to most people is that first game. I think you guys are losing to Seattle 21 to nothing. 
come back and win the game, I think, 27-21. to 21. You had a big win in New York against a really good Jets team. I mean, when during that season did you realize you guys had something special? Ooh. Well, uh, 1981, the Super Bowl season, we, we really, uh, things started to click I think after the third or fourth game, we're like, okay, we got something here. Uh, our defense uh, was good. Uh, we had some great uh, linebackers, and uh, we had a great defensive line uh, with uh, Wilson Whitley and Gary Burley and Eddie Edwards, Ross Brown. We we had we had a real good defensive line. Uh, special teams was good. Uh, created a lot of big plays for us. Uh, and offensively, uh, they would always. Uh, put us in a good uh, position in the, on the field when we took over offensively, and uh, I think that was Chris Hollinsworth. Uh, was that Chris Collinsworth? Yeah, uh, yeah Chris came in as the second round pick, and Verser was the first round pick. Okay, Chris Collinsworth's uh, rookie year. I remember that. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you had Isaac Curtis, Kenny Riley, Reggie exactly. Williams. I mean, that team was really good. Yeah, we we were deep, but we needed somebody to bring it out of us, and uh, that's what Coach Greg did. Uh, Chris wasn't the, the, the uh, prettiest. He didn't run the prettiest routes, but he would catch everything that was close to him. Uh, yeah, then you had Dan Ross, too. You can't forget about oh, that. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Dan was one of my uh, better friends on the team. Uh Great hands, one of some of the best hands I've seen. Uh, same thing with Chris and Isaac was uh, still had a lot left in him. He had great speed, great hands, ran great routes. And and Kenny, uh, it, it seems like they were trying to replace Kenny the whole time I was there, and he he just never would quit. And he, when the when the smoke cleared, he would always end up on top. And we had we had a lot of great athletes. Uh, Pete Johnson was in the backfield with me. Uh, nobody wanted to tackle Pete once it got cold, especially. Yeah, and you had a great offensive line. I mean, you're running behind Anthony oh. Munoz, guys like that. I mean, Vlad Bush, Anthony Munoz, Max Montoya, Dave Lappin. Yeah, we had we had some we had some great guys. Glenn Bouchard from Texas A&M. We had we had a great offensive line, and uh, it seems like we we played better. Uh, the longer the year went, the better we got. Or the better we felt uh, about ourselves, and uh, it was it was a great team to be a part of. Yeah, the, the game to me as a fan, where I realized how good you guys were when you went to San Diego and beat them, I think forty to seventeen. Monday night, I think that was a Monday night game. Uh, Eighty-two was the Monday night because we didn't. Oh, there was no okay. Bengals games on Monday night in eighty-one because the Bengals were so bad the couple years before that. <laughs> but I mean, I, I because this is the thing. I had Ed White, the great former guard for San Diego, on, and we're talking about the Freezer Bowl, and he starts whining that if they'd <laughs> played in San Diego, they'd have beat us. And I'm like, Ed, if you remember, the Bengals beat you worse in San Diego in November in eighty degree weather. <laughs> yeah, I, I can remember. Uh, <clears throat> of course, he didn't recall that game, Charles. Huh? <laughs> he didn't What's recall that, that game. He yeah, didn't I didn't. Well, I, I, I guess I, I, I was shell-shocked because every time we would score, that cannon would go off. <laughs> you know, that would kind of catch you off guard, you know. <laughs> but, well, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun uh, 
playing them in that in the freezer bowl because that had to be worth at least ten points because they did not want to play in those conditions. Yeah, Kenny Anderson threw like it was seventy degrees out, and Dan Fouts threw like he just wanted to. Go home. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, before was, we get uh, to that, we can't miss what I mean. The game I most remember from your career was the divisional playoff game against the Buffalo team that I think may have been better than that San Diego team. I think you ran for seventy-two yards, two touchdowns. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, I think Coach Greg gave us the uh, the old Max McGee speech that week. That guy used to give some great speeches too. By the way, <laughs> and. Uh, I don't know if you remember Max McGee. He was a wide receiver uh, with the, uh, the Green Bay Packers, and yeah, uh, he didn't uh, he didn't play much. Uh, if he played a lot, he didn't they didn't really feature him. And he, Coach Greg said that uh, we need a Max McGee. We need somebody to you know stand up and somebody that we hadn't really depended on all year. And he was told us the old Max McGee story and how Max McGee saved him in a playoff game. And uh, Pat McAnally teased me after that game. He started calling me Max McGee. (laughs) You know, I was basically... uh, The next week, M.L. Harris was Max McGee. He made basically the game-finishing touchdown catch. That's right, Uh, right, right. And Don Bass caught a a touchdown pass, too. uh, Yeah, uh, I mean, that year in the playoffs, I mean, the guys that you wouldn't expect to be making the plays are the ones that made the plays. Um, Right. Keep your hands warm, 
and the test of football. Man, it's amazing how ancient things were back then. <laughs> I know. I go yeah. to a football team now, and all these kids are wearing gloves that are so sticky, you should never drop anything. Really? <laughs> so we like, will... Can't you catch without the gloves? I mean, when I played, <laughs> there wasn't no gloves. Yeah, but these were, I don't know if you even remember seeing them. These were the black gloves, and they were thick. Yeah, I remember seeing. I remember seeing them during the game broadcast. Actually. Okay, okay, and it's just hard to even imagine trying to hold on to a ball wearing those gloves, but we did. And uh, but the thing we always, I know each, I know I had it in my mind. It's like, okay, I know I'm uncomfortable, and my advantage is at least I've been dealing with this weather all week. I've been here in Cincinnati. I couldn't imagine that those guys coming out of 75-degree weather. Yeah, and if you remember the week before when they played Miami in the Orange Bowl, it was like 80, 85 degrees there. I remember that. I remember that. That's Kellen like Winslow. degree uh, difference, yeah. <laughs> you're right. I mean, that's the game that Kellen Winslow almost fell out, and they had to help him off the field. If that, if, if that's, is that the game? Yes, the game where yeah. they actually, the Dolphins had two chances to win it with field goals, I think, and he actually blocked both of them, and then he caught like 12 or 13 balls in the game. Right, right. He was so exhausted. I, I remember that. And, and I mean, you're talking almost, what, a 100-degree change in the weather. Yeah, actually, <laughs> if you go wind chill, it's about a 150-degree difference. <laughs> right, right. So I just I just knew they had to be uncomfortable. Whether, whether or not they were showing it is a different story, but... Uh, it, it, it was a mental game, a mental thing, and I, and I just felt like we had to, we had to have the advantage. All right, so you win the game, you go to the Super Bowl. And, of course, being Bengals luck, the Super Bowl's in Pontiac, where it's also below <laughs> zero and snowing. Um, what, what do you remember about the weeks leading up to the Super Bowl and then the game itself? Well, uh, you know, at that time, there was no Twitter, there was no I don't even know if they were in, if it was the internet or you know. So the media was basically someone that would come to you with a microphone. It wasn't much. Yeah, it was it just was, TV and radio back then. Yeah, right, right. It wasn't a, a, a lot of the uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of that. So uh, we did get coverage, and uh, like you said, unfortunately, it was in Pontiac, Michigan. <laughs> we, we didn't. It was hard to get in any type of trouble there because uh, you couldn't go anywhere. You were basically locked up in your hotel room because uh, all the snow. And uh, we had rental cars, but we couldn't use them because most of us were scared to, to try to get out there and drive in the snow. So uh, it was a different experience, but a good experience. Uh, the game itself, uh, thank God, uh, the the. The, the first half in particular, uh, we didn't play Cincinnati Bengals football. We were a little uptight, and it kind of showed, and we fell behind. Uh, if I remember correctly, it might have been 20 to nothing at halftime. Yeah. And uh thing I was worried about, I'm like, man, 20 to nothing at halftime. Now we got to go in this locker room at halftime and deal with Forrest Gregg. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, well, here it goes. And lo and behold, there was no screaming. There was there was no yelling. Uh, Coach Greg said, you know, look, you guys are obviously uptight. You're not playing like I know you can play. And 
I'm just going to let you guys think amongst yourselves, uh, and let's let's just go out there and we know we can do better than this. And, and that was pretty much it. He let us uh, just deal with ourselves, and uh, things actually turned around in the second half. Yeah, I mean, you guys come back, almost win the game. I got to ask yeah. you about the goal line stand, I guess. <laughs> no, don't break that up, please. <laughs> I didn't want to, but I know there's going to be you know a bunch of people listening. Why didn't he answer that goal line stand? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what the hell uh, happened? <laughs> well, I'm gonna tell you. I, I, I'll make it. Uh, I'll tell as much as I can. We we uh, we were always dependent on Pete Johnson on the goal line, especially, which is that's the way we should have, and. They were they were prepared for it, and I think it was on third down. We said, "Well, we're going to get a little bit away from our tendencies, and we're going to uh, fake it to Pete, and hit me with a pass in the flat." And as I released, uh, going toward the linebacker, uh, trying to make him think that I was going to block him, it, it, it looked like he was in the huddle with us. Uh, and I saw, uh, I knew that Ken Anderson was going to have to get rid of the football real fast. So the last thing I wanted was to get hit in the back of the head with the football. Yeah. So my thing was get your head around, focus on the football, and catch the football. That that's that's number one. And but uh, you know, as some of the commentators said, <laughs> I should have run a little bit farther up in the end zone and then broke my right off, but. I didn't I mean, want to get you that. He may not have had time to get you the ball. That was my point. <laughs> yeah, and and so. I mean, the thing is this: even the way you ran the route, it took a perfect tackle to make that play. Oh, they were ready for it. They were. I don't. And, know. and my bigger problem is this: on fourth and goal, I still think if you bootleg Kenny Anderson, you walk in the end zone. Bootleg Kenny Anderson and let Dan Ross uh, an option. Yep. Yeah, he could either run or, or throw to Dan. Yeah, and I mean, really, the way they were lined up, I don't think anybody had been out there to stop Anderson from really? running it in. But what the hell? Yeah. I'm a Bengals fan, so every game ends with a sad story, or every season ends with a sad story, so I'm used to that. Um, we go to 1982, um, strike year. You want to talk a little bit about your experiences during the strike? Yeah, I think that kind of uh, that divided the team a little bit. Uh that was uh, – I'm just trying to remember some of the things that happened. You know, we we were told by uh, our player rep – I can't remember who the player rep was at that time, but we were told by the player rep to we were going to play three – I think it was three games or four, and then we were going to go on strike. So uh, save up your pennies. Uh, don't spend your money. And then, you know, you have a little nest egg to – to hold you over until this this deal is uh, decided on what you know, till we decide on what we're going to do. And uh, lo and behold, after the first week, we had guys wanting to cross the line. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, okay, this ain't going to be. Uh, nobody actually thought it was going to happen. I don't think that's what. Yeah, it was. so nobody actually saved their money. Right. Well, I'm not going to say nobody, but there were there was Very some good. pressure for us to go back and. Uh, after the first week, and uh, strike lasted a little bit longer than than we anticipated. If I remember correctly, here I go with my memory again. <laughs> but 
it had to last at least a month, maybe six weeks. Yeah, because I think the season ended up being nine weeks, so you probably had a week of practice in there. So, yeah, probably about six. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know that that particular, after that, it, you know, guys, uh, some guys didn't get along anymore, and it was some, some ill feelings. And uh, we just we just didn't come together as a unit after that, that happened. Uh, it was a short season. And I can remember us trying to, Trying to keep the team together, we used to go to the University of Cincinnati uh, and practice. Uh, try to keep keep everybody together and uh, not just sit at home and 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 try to wait and see what happened. And it was just an ugly thing, and I, I really uh, don't think it was worth it from what we got out of the deal. Yeah, it almost never is. The owners seem like they almost always win. Yeah, yeah. You guys needed Marvin Miller, the one that did the baseball strike in '81. He could have taken care of you better, I think. (laughs) Right, right. And I, I I think, uh, and I wasn't involved in the next strike, but uh, free agency was the key in the next strike, and that's that's when the salaries just started to to explode. Yeah, and I think the biggest problem with those is, I mean, as you see, I mean, retired players were never really considered in either one of those negotiations. I don't think. Never. Never, never, and uh, you know, uh, and I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the older guys. Uh, you know, those yeah, guys, especially the guys from like the '60s. I mean, I've had right. a couple guys on that were Hall of Famers that played yeah. for 12 years, and they'll tell me my pension today is $1,200 a month. Yeah, exactly. From a six billion dollar industry, <laughs> and that's just yeah, that's, TV that's, talk. Uh, that's that's pretty weak. Yeah, that's and you know, like you said, the rest of the sports, basketball and baseball, those guys are taken care of. But uh, I know I'm preaching to the choir on this. So. Yeah, I mean the problem is NFL players are the ones that need to be taken care of because the average year career is three, three and a half years. Right. Yeah, we I don't. Mean, a lot of guys play for a year or two, don't even qualify for the pension. And that's that's a that's a that's a shame also, but. Uh, that strike thing, that strike year in, in '82 was uh, it wasn't a pretty thing. And we yeah, were all you guys. Crazy. You guys still ended up having a good regular season, going seven and two, and then the bottom kind of fell out against Freeman McNeil and the Jets. We're not even going to discuss that because that game. <laughs> uh, '83 was a rough season. Uh, I know you guys suffered a lot of injuries and stuff. Forrest Gregg left. Um, what was your first impression of Sam Weiss? Uh, can I go back to the Forrest Greg left? Yes, you can. <laughs> okay. I can remember, uh, for some reason, every time we played on national TV that year, we would get beat. Oh, yeah, I remember Miami beating you. <laughs> uh, I remember those games. Yeah, so far. I was my whole week back then. I was in, like, seventh, eighth grade, so I right. thought everything was way more important than what it actually was. When you lost a game, uh, particularly, uh, well, he wanted to win. You know, of course, he wanted to win them all. And uh, some, like when we played Cleveland, I can remember Cleveland for some reason. Well, I know why Cleveland. Uh, Green Bay, and I don't know how Minnesota got in this, but uh, he would just snap <laughs> when you come to the locker room after a loss. <laughs> 
and I can remember this like it was yesterday. He had some choice words for us after the 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 last that was a, that was on the road. It was in Minnesota, and uh, after we got in the locker room, he gave us that was his last speech to us. And after that speech, <laughs> I was like, I don't think this guy is coming back. Was that was that the Mary Ethan Christmas or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, okay. I, I, I think, want, hey, I didn't want to say it on the radio. <laughs> yeah, it was either Gary Burley or Reggie Williams was on and told the exact same story about the game in Minnesota. <laughs> I didn't want to say it on the radio, but that was it. That was his last words. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think there, no matter what was going on here, Forrest Gregg was going to go back to Green Bay no matter what y'all did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was his. That was his final word. That's the last time I ever heard him speak. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, well, I know we we had me and Joe Kelly do a weekly Bengal show. You remember the old Bengal linebacker? And yeah. We had Bo Harris as well as our guest last week during the show, and he okay. said he actually talked to Forrest on the phone last week, and Forrest was doing better than what he had been. Great. That's great. But, That's so great. That was, did, did Bo, did Bo uh, bring that up to, to Coach Greg? Uh, no, I don't know. Bo didn't bring it up to us. But oh, okay. But I'm supposed to interview Bo at some point about his career, too. So I'm betting it'll come up because almost every 1981, 82, 83 Bengal brings that up. <laughs> 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 but so it's got to be polar opposites. You get Sam Weiss after Forrest Greg. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I don't think Forrest was doing too many magic tricks. <laughs> now, I can put Coach Weiss sort of like, you know, we started out with Homer Rice, which, you know, Homer was a uh, very small man, uh, maybe five foot seven, uh, definitely didn't weigh 170 pounds. Uh, then you bring Forrest Greg and have six foot six. 270 or whatever. Yeah, and... everybody on the team's ass, so. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, you, so the next coach is Sam Weiss, and he kind of like falls in the middle, you know. And not only in the middle for his uh, uh, physical size, uh, he fell in the middle with, uh, like, he didn't have, he wasn't, his, wasn't a Homer Rice, but he also wasn't a Forrest Gregg for his uh, you know, all the yelling and screaming and intimidating guys and all of that. So I, uh, Coach Weiss kind of coached you uh, more out of motivation. He would he would try to motivate you rather than uh, uh, intimidate you. So, yeah, uh, motivation is scared the hell out of you. <laughs> yeah, right. Except for when he when – he, uh, and I wasn't there at the time, but I, I, I've, I've seen this on YouTube when uh, he – Took the microphone. Some of the Bengal fans were acting up in the in the stands and <laughs> told them, "You live in Cincinnati. You don't live in Cleveland." Yeah, you don't live in Cleveland. You live in Cincinnati. Right, and, right. Well, that ended up in a loss, also twenty four to seventeen to the Seahawks. See, all the stuff from when I was in junior high and high school was beat into me. I can remember every score from pretty much every. Right, game. right. Couldn't so. tell you what happened over the last twenty years at all, probably, but. <laughs> 
I mean, in the '90s, I think it just kind of made me kind of brain dead from watching them try to play back then. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. 1984. I mean, it was actually a season that I thought that team, the way they were playing, had a shot to actually make a Super Bowl if they could have made the playoffs. I think you guys started off one and six, and then got hot. And I think the got hot thing coincided with Kenny Anderson where they finally gave him his job back when Boomer had a rough time for a few games. You want to talk right. about the 84 season? Yeah, now, you know, I, for some reason, I don't remember much about 84 and 85, but uh, uh, I just remember, uh, I think we had, uh, Eddie Brown was on that team. No, I think Eddie was eighty-five. I still think it was. Oh, Curtis was he? Okay. For the main wide receiver. Okay, and I and I'm, I'm trying to remember. I know Dan Ross had left and come back, and I don't remember if he had come back that yeah. year or the year. Remember Esiason had come in, and yeah. I think they tried yeah. to start him off and on, but Anderson always outplayed him. Right, and that's. Uh, I knew eventually though that the Boomer was going to end up being the quarterback because I'm like, poor Kenny, Kenny man. Because I still take <laughs> Kenny Anderson over Boomer Esiason any day. Yeah, yeah. Kenny Kenny was uh Kenny was a tough guy to endure all of that, you know. I'm like, man, he he never pouted, he just went on about his work and and uh and done his thing. But uh yeah uh Sam brought in a new staff and I had a new running back coach. Uh we had uh, Stanley Stanley Wilson, uh James Brooks. I think Pete Johnson was traded for for uh, James Brooks and uh I was kind of stuck at Moving to the fullback position, but it was a totally different offense. Uh, I think it was Stanford Jennings' first year there too, wasn't it? Yeah, it might have been. His first, yeah, I think I played two years for Stanford uh, out of Furman. Uh, we had James Brooks, uh, Stanley Wilson, uh, Larry Kennebrew, and we had a new running back coach, Jim Anderson. Uh, yeah, who ended up being there forever. Yeah, yeah. How's he doing? Do you know? I have no idea. I I, I don't think he's with him anymore as a running backs coach, but I'm not 100 percent right. sure. I know he was he just might, a few years ago, but yeah, he might have been. Might have gone into management with the Bengals. I know he really had a close close connection with Mike Brown. Uh, but yeah. those those were those were some good years. Also, like you said, we we had we had a uh, a good team and. Uh, one thing uh, Coach Weiss did bring to the team was uh, uh, a lot of uh, mm, rigid, uh, new new things, uh, like the no-huddle offense. Yeah. I think we were the first ones to uh, to bring that to the NFL, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I mean, the uh, first time, other than maybe a team running a two-minute drill, but it was the first team to run the two-minute drill during the actual game. Right, doing an actual game. And, I, think, uh, I think the Bengals, with Jim McNally as the offensive line coach, were one of the first teams to really use the zone blocking scheme, too. Wow, okay. Which I think that was more like the 86-87 season. Right, yeah, yeah. I know uh, Kimbrough really liked to run that, that 46-M lead with, the, uh, with that zone blocking. Yeah. He used to do a good job at that. Yeah, he was a good running back. He just kind of yeah. got himself out of the league, I think, though. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think I saw a picture. That, man, he, he looks really good now. He's smaller now than he than he was when he played. Well, i got to find him, get him on the show. He's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I remember the game in Houston in 84. I think he scored like four touchdowns. 
You tell him I said hello. He's a good guy. Oh, I like O'Leary. So. Yeah. I was hoping maybe you'd know him. So. <laughs> but, all right, so you wrapped your career up in 1985. Um, what you been doing since? What are you doing today? Uh, I have a little product. Uh, well, not one product. i got several products. I, I'm in the uh, uh, seasoning business, uh, spending a lot of time in Louisiana, uh, I, I, I'm in the seasoning business, and I have my uh, my products in about uh, 250 stores. Uh, I have an all-purpose seasoning. I have a fish fry. I have two hot sauces, and I have a crab ball. Uh, I have a website that people can go to and order online. If uh, I'm getting it in a lot of stores on the East Coast, so I don't know if it's in the Ohio area yet. Uh, I'm waiting for a list to see list of stores to see. Uh, where they have actually been shipping my product, but the uh, the website is uh, www. Well, I need to tell you the name of the product too. It's called Come On Man Cajun Seasoning. Uh, stole that from the uh, ESPN uh, Monday Night Football <laughs> uh, crew. Yeah, you need um, one of them guys to come on and endorse it for you. Well, they actually gave me about uh, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, maybe two football seasons ago, they actually gave me about 15 seconds. Not me personally, but they did put my product uh, on. Yeah, and talked about it for about 15 seconds. So that helped out a lot. But the website is uh, comeonmancajunseasoning.com. You can pull up my name, and it'll kind of go straight to that website. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, so what gave you the inclination to start that business, and how long ago did you start it? Uh, started about four years ago, and uh, I like to cook, and I have a uh, my all-purpose seasoning. Uh, I had been pretty much dibbling and dabbling in it for the last ten, fifteen years. Uh, a lot of my uh, friends and relatives said, "Man, you need to put it on the market." So. Uh, Someone came to me with an opportunity uh, on how to uh, package and blend uh, my ingredients, and I took the ball and ran from it, and it's growing every year. All right, so what was that website again, just for anybody who wants to order? It's www.comeonmancajunseasoning.com. All right, anybody that's listening, if you didn't write it down or you don't have something to write it down with, um, go on our Facebook page, The Grueling Truth. You'll see a link to his website there. It will also put a link on Twitter for him. So make sure that you check that out. So okay. anything else occupying your time of the day, Charles? Well, I'm, I'm also in the oil and gas business here in Houston. Uh, I, uh, I follow the Bengals. Uh, I have that NFL package, so, you know, you can pretty much – uh, follow follow anyone on uh, any team on on the NFL package. Uh, do that. I, I uh, since I live here in Houston, I, I like to watch the Texans, and uh, you know, just still love football, man. I, I it's it's been a part of my life, and I enjoy watching it. All right. Well, you got to come on with me and Joe Kelly some Wednesday night. We do a show every eight o'clock every Wednesday night, and a weekly Bengals show. Yeah, I would I would love to. Uh, I only played maybe. If, I think Joe was a rookie when I got cut, so I don't. 
I don't really know Joe that well, but I have met him. You tell him I said hello. I definitely will, and I'll be back in touch with you, see if you want to come on with us sometime. That sounds good. All right. Hey, thanks again, Charles, for calling in. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. Yep, you too. All right, right. guys, that was Charles Alexander, former LSU Cincinnati Bengals running back. Uh, Make sure you check out GridRMO at www.gridironmo.com. You can hear all shows on iHeart, iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, pretty much anywhere you play play. Anywhere you find sports podcast, you'll find the grueling truth. So for Charles Alexander, I'm Mike Goodpastor. You've been listening to the grueling truth where the legends speak.